Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com/wondersuite. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus. dot com slash acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Welcome to the Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. We're going to start by talking about one aspect of inflation.、Uh, regular listeners will be delighted to know we're not going to go off on one today about all of the overall inflation problems present in the world, big though that they are. The reappointment today of Jerome Powell as chairman of the Federal Reserve is significant in that regard. But we're going to hold our inflation rants for another day. But we're going to talk about one particular price. That has attracted a lot of attention for obvious reasons from all of us, actually. Whether we are renting or owning houses, house prices and house rents, pretty much everywhere in the world, are a big part of this global inflation story. Not least in Ireland, not least in Britain, and of course the United States. Jim, there's been some data out over the last few days with respect to Irish house prices, and there's been a colossal amount of commentary in the press over the last few days from various. Players on this stage, both politicians and experts, sometimes self-appointed. So, run through that data and what the various expert heads have been saying. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon. Yeah, housing is really starting to become an issue of even greater、um, political controversy in this country.、Um, I have argued on this podcast for some time my belief that the next election. Would be won or lost on the basis of the housing market performance, and unfortunately, from the perspective of the incumbent government, the market still appears to be moving beyond anything they can possibly control.、Uh, last week, we got house price data showing that in the year to September, national average house prices increased by twelve point four percent, and between March thirteen. Which was the low point of the market after the crash, 
and September 21, prices have increased by 106.3%. If you look at a couple of components of the market, and I could do this for all 26 counties, uh, but I presume we would lose most of our listeners um, halfway into that process, so I'm not going to do that. But if you look at a couple of important components, the rest of Ireland, excluding Dublin, um, between May 13 and September 21, prices have increased by 108.2%. And in September, prices were 13.2% higher than a year earlier. And in Dublin then, uh, between February 2012, which is when the Dublin market bottomed out after the crash, and September 2021, prices have increased by 113.6%. And the annual rate of inflation in September was running at 11.5%. The CSO, a couple of weeks back, published data also on what's happening in the rental market. And in the year to October, private rents are up on average by 7.5%. But between the end of 2010 and October this year, rents have increased by about 88%. So in summary, you know, the housing market is absolutely on fire. Uh, The cost of housing, be it owner-occupier housing or rental housing, rents continue to increase at a very significant pace. And I would um, unambiguously describe these trends as an economic bad. Um, It is damaging and undermining the cost competitiveness of the economy. Um, It is creating serious problems for uh, people who are trying to get on the housing ladder. And I, I guess... Um, the only sort of source of comfort is the fact that interest rates at least remain very low. Uh, but the market is, you know, absolutely on fire at the moment. There's no doubt about that. And um, we, we've had a lot of um, debate and ideologically driven debate, I think, primarily on the housing market over the last couple of years. And housing has very definitely become um, a bit of a political football and that does worry me because I think any issue that becomes an ideologically driven um, divisive political issue, um, finding a solution that achieves the best possible outcome is always going to be very difficult. Um, I noticed in The Economist magazine uh, this weekend, there was two pieces on the role of investors in housing. And um I, I, the, the the story was the story that, that one of the pieces began um, about the growing sense around the world um, of the evils of investors investment funds in the property in the residential property market, and um, it, I, I guess the from my perspective, what really um, captured my attention was the fact that Ireland and Dublin featured quite prominently. Um, and they started off one of the pieces by saying that Vultures Out read one of the many placards young protesters waved at a recent rally in Dublin. Um, and then they went on to talk about the attitude towards investment funds in a number of countries around the world. So, for example, the White House wants to restrict the type of properties that large investors can buy. New Zealand has scrapped tax breaks for property investors Ireland has slapped a 10% tax on the bulk buying of houses. Uh, The Canadians have said they want a significant and serious examination of the role of investors in the Canadian market. 
uh, we saw, and this is something we discussed during the summer, uh, the in Berlin, they voted to sell more than 200,000 private flats to the state. Um, and that that referendum was non-legally binding, but um, and I don't think it has happened yet and it may not happen, but it, it is indicative of the, the attitude towards investors in the German market. Um, Spain is introducing rent controls, higher taxes and empty property, and a ban on buying second housing. So across the world, really, there's a huge backlash against these investment funds that have come in and, um, you know, bought up quite a significant amount of property, um, residential property across the world. Um, But so we're demonizing investors and... The, the real question then is, you know, what role do these investment funds play in the housing market and in the rental market? Um, in Ireland, for example, between 2017 and 2019, institutional investors provided more than three quarters of the total development finance for residential house building in this country. And the government now has a policy housing for all. And they want to build 33,000 houses per annum out to 2030. This will consist of social and affordable um, owner-occupier and rental housing. But it is estimated that to deliver that level of housing, institutional investors or at least external capital will have to provide about 80% of the funding required for that. So if you recognize this reality, the role that investment funds play, and at the same time, you demonize them and try, to dr- and try and drive them out of the market. And indeed, I had a phone call today from an investment um, fund in London, um, a fund that has been financing the delivery of housing in Ireland. And they were extremely concerned about this piece in The Economist magazine today. And um, my view would be that if we demonize these investors and drive them out of the Irish market, um, who is going to actually provide the capital to deliver the housing that's required. And, and that pretty much was the theme of what The Economist was saying as well, uh, that we really need to be careful about demonizing these investment funds because they are now increasingly around the world um, an, an important part of the delivery of housing, particularly uh, the delivery in the rental market. And, and one of the trends we've also seen in this country is the number of sort of individual or private landlords has fallen significantly in recent years. And that's because of taxation. It's because of their demonization. It's because of regulation. So if you demonize private landlords, if you demonize the investment funds, who in hell is going to provide the housing that's required? So well, is it, isn't the answer that provided you election fain in a couple of years time, they will build all the houses that people want to live in. Isn't that the proposition, Jim? Uh, yes, it, it is indeed. Um, and I guess bring so it government on. Is, government is the answer. Bring it, bring it on if that's the case. Um, I, I, would, I would be seriously concerned about uh, the ability of government to actually fill the void left by if these investment funds were to exit the market. Well, let's make one observation, first of all, is that governments clearly are not filling this void on either side of the Irish Sea or in either side of the Atlantic. In the countries that you mentioned, I know Canada very well, and that property market has been on fire for years, uh, far longer than Ireland. And the UK uh, similarly has been, has been um, 
strong this year and last year and the and the year before. So as I've said to you before, Jim, this is a global phenomenon. I think the one of the principal drivers of it is low interest rates, and that this problem you you you'll be you'll be surprised if when you build loads of houses how much the price doesn't come down by as much as you think it will do. This is a story about low interest rates rather than any any anything else. It's not just about low interest rates, but that that's always been been my position. The mystery is, Jim, is that why don't governments just build more houses? They used to. Decade in the UK and in Ireland, governments, particularly local authorities, built loads of houses every year. Why? Why won't they do it now? Well, here in Ireland, um, the local authorities did play a significant role in delivering local authority housing around the country, and did so quite successfully. Uh, but gradually, over time, uh, the power has been taken away from local authorities, and everything was basically farmed out to. Are, are subcontracted out to pr- private developers, really. Um, and, and that has created a situation where local government does not have the capability of actually delivering the housing supply that's required. Um, you could turn around and try and recreate that capability. Uh, but unfortunately, the amount of time it would take to put local authorities in a position to deliver the type of housing that's required over the coming years uh, would just take too long. So um, I, I don't I don't believe uh, giving local authorities the wherewithal to build houses again uh, would actually happen quickly enough to solve the problem. And the capacity clearly isn't there in central government either. Uh, no, it's, oh God, no, no, no. Central government doesn't have the capacity. And, and it's um, not that the capacity couldn't be created. One presumes that with the right will and the right execution of a plan in a number of years, because it would take years, the uh, central and or local government could get back to building lots of houses again. But that institutional memory has long since gone and it would take years for it to come back. And I think that's important in the point that you make about uh, vulture funds, investment funds, whatever terminology you want to use, because they've got both, haven't they? They've got the capital, they've got the money, and they've got the expertise. They know about construction, they know about um, rules and regulations. They know about planning. They know where, their way around regulation. They know their way around letting laws, for example. So if they don't have the in-house expertise, they know how to acquire it very, very quickly, unlike local and central government. So when you talk about demonizing these funds, it's not just because they've got the money. It's like they've got the capacity and the expertise as well to do it. So if you're going to send them away, who's going to do it for you, Jim? I just don't think that uh, demonizing investment funds, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on this one, is necessarily the right way to do it. Regulate them better, um, make sure that they're not being extractive, that they're not you know, monopolists or anything like that. And that can all be done through rules and regulation. But uh, to send them, away, send them packing, uh, you might be disappointed by the outcome that you get. So what I'm guessing, Jim, is that you think that this problem is with us for the foreseeable. I do, Chris. Um, I, I think we have got to recognise the important role that external investment will have to continue to play. And, you know, that's in relation to housing. But external investment has always played a significant role in this small, open Irish economy with 5 million people. Um, if you look at the role of uh, ex- foreign direct investment, for example, you know, which which isn't very different. It's foreign capital coming into the country uh, to create something. Um, so I, I think we've got to recognise the the role that 
foreign capital has and will and have to will have to continue to play in the market. Uh, we also need to address a lot of supply side issues. Uh, the planning process needs to be fit for purpose. It is not at the moment. Uh, we have to ensure that as housing is being developed, that services are being provided as quickly as possible. And I see a lot of real evidence um, and a number of builders and developers have shown me the evidence of um, the inability of Irish water to actually connect up water quickly enough. And we have houses lying idle waiting to come on sale in the market um, or become part of the social housing stock, whatever type of housing it is, where it's just proving really difficult to get water on site. So that there's, there's a lot of issues like that. And, and the other one, of course, is the cost of build. Um, over 40% of the cost of a new house goes back to the state in some type of taxation or charge. Um, you know, that, that needs to be reduced as well. And um, obviously, um, you know, for example, reducing the VAT rate, say, to 5%, uh, the, the, the critics or the opponents of that would say, well, that's immediately just going to increase the margin of the builder or the developer and that it won't be passed on to the house buyer. But it is not beyond the capability of the Department of Finance and the Revenue Commissioners to come up with some sort of mechanism, and I, I have ideas about this, but to come up with some sort of mechanism whereby a reduction in the VAT rate would actually be passed on to uh, the house buyer. So it, it 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 would not result in a widening of the margins for de- of the margin for developers, but would improve the affordability for the house buyer. So we we do need to think outside the box on solution to this housing situation. But we also, I think, need to recognise that the housing market is not just one single entity. We have social housing, we have affordable housing, we have buy-to-let housing, and we have the rental market. And we have to address all four, whereas a lot of the ideologically driven narrative around this is that the only thing we need to address is social and affordable there's much more to the market than that and i think it's important Mm. that a sort of a holistic approach is taken to try and solve it but solve it we need to i assume that you don't think we are going to solve this uh no i don't i'd have very little confidence chris i think it's even even if we deliver what we're promising to deliver it's going to take years Yes, with all sorts of political consequences, as, as you rightly say. Um, let's move on away from housing, Jim, and talk a little bit about COVID, COVID corner. Uh, one of the things that I've been fascinated by or appalled by, really, but fascinated and appalled, is the violence in places like Holland and Austria protesting new restrictions. Uh, I'm fascinated to see countries that really don't have much history of street protest in the way that... Uh, these countries like the Netherlands do, uh, finding it really objectionable to have their freedoms curtailed once more. I wonder whether you think that, um, uh, I see Tony Holohan today is saying that uh, we should think think about more restrictions um, in Ireland, perhaps, uh, if the situation doesn't improve. Would there be many street protests in Ireland? Uh, I certainly hope not, but um, is uh, is it likely to be any different is one question. The the other more analytical database thing is that um, I'm a bit perplexed as to um, why 
there is a bit of a mystery as to what's going on. Uh, I know there's lots about COVID that is mysterious. There's lots about COVID forecasting that tells you that you should stay away from it. Uh, the the evidence that we have, though, seems to me to be quite compelling, which is that um, in Israel, we had very early evidence of vaccine efficacy waning and their case rate going to the moon. And then the, the power of a third dose, bringing case rates all the way back down again. And that if you didn't either have uh, some kind of herd immunity from prior infection, which is what the UK has a little bit of, um, and or the third dose regime being brought in very, very quickly, your cases are going to do what Israel's did. We, we, we've almost had a, a lab-controlled experiment um, looking at the Israeli experience. So why anybody is surprised by this, what uh, is, is being called the fourth wave, um, I'm, I'm not quite so sure why, why people are surprised. So the numbers are terrible in Ireland. Do you think that there will be protest if there are more restrictions brought back for Christmas? Sort of, you know, like we're seeing in Holland and Belgium and Austria? Yes, Chris, the COVID situation here is really deteriorating rapidly. We're seeing a significant ongoing growth in case numbers. Hospitalization numbers are rising. ICU numbers are rising. And uh, clearly, the health authorities are really concerned about the capacity of the health system to actually cope with this if it continues much longer. Um, and we've seen the introduction of some very mild changes. I mean, if I if you're operating in the hospitality or in entertainment and hospitality, it's obviously not mild. But uh, in, in the context of the all of the restrictions we've lived with over the last couple of years, the changes that were announced last week um, are minimal enough unless, as I say, you are directly affected by the measures. Um, but there is definitely a political reluctance to actually increase more stringent measures again or introduce more stringent measures again, because um, I think they're looking around Europe at the moment and are really fearful that this could easily happen in Ireland. And I would have little doubt that if we saw further significant restrictions being introduced here, uh, that there would be protests of the type we've seen across Europe. Um, I can't see any reason why not, to be honest. No, that's a shame um, because obviously none of us like to see that that kind of thing going on anywhere, least of all close to home. But um, it, it's not looking good. And I have to say, I think it's not looking good in various countries because they haven't learned the lessons from the data from the experience of other countries. This knowledge that we've had, which is that vaccine efficacy wanes and that the booster campaign works, has we've had this knowledge for some time. And I can't understand why countries have been so slow to get going. I guess it ultimately comes down to a couple of possibilities. One is just the logistics of getting vaccines into people's arms. Ireland's been very good at that. Let's be, be fair about the first two injections. Uh, countries like Austria less so and that's because of reluctance of the individual population and I, I guess without doing Austria-like mandates to, to for vaccinations about which they're protesting you're going to struggle if there is vaccine reluctance and, and, and but, but public messaging I think is important I think credit where credit is due public messaging in Ireland has been good it must have been good because the first two uh, vaccines um, th- th- those those numbers were very very high 
But um, why haven't you got third vaccines into um, everybody's arms in the way that um, Israel has done? I could ask the UK authorities that. I could ask the Irish authorities that. I think it's extraordinary how slow that has been. One important piece of information that I think is, is relevant here is that I've noticed one or two experts talking about the third vaccine in those terms rather than the booster. From what we've learned, is becoming a three-dose regime, that you're not fully vaccinated until you've had the third dose. And this idea that it's a booster, a top-up, gives it kind of an optionality. Well, you know, it's a nice-to-have rather than a must-have. If it's a three-dose regime, then it's a must-have. And I don't think that messaging has been gotten across. I think there's been a lot of confused messaging. And I think the authorities have handled this poorly. And the idea that there's no surge capacity in the health system, that speaks to successive failures of successive governments um, in terms of expanding capacity in the health system and getting it ready for uh, for these kinds of emergencies. Uh, the number of ICU beds in Ireland is still spectacularly low relative to any kind of reasonable peer group, um, and that you've spent the last two years not adding to this capacity. Uh, why you why these people are never held to account, and maybe they will one day, I don't know, but um, I, I think it's incredibly disappointing that we've ended up in this situation, and it speaks to very poor planning, very very poor statecraft, if you like. Um, and, and I think we've seen that through the pandemic in several countries, not just Ireland. Yeah, Chris, um, a couple of weeks ago when Sean Fitzpatrick, the former chief executive and chairman of Anglo-Irish Bank, died, um, a newspaper asked me to do a piece looking at the role of Anglo in the Irish economic collapse. And I attributed the Anglo's activities and what subsequently happened in the Irish banking system um, I attributed the problems in the health sector and in a lot of other areas back to what happened during that period. And the reality was that after 2008, um, funding of the health service was cut back quite significantly and a lot of capacity was taken out of the system. And unfortunately, despite the recovery in the economy and the recovery in the public finances, uh, that capacity has not been put back into the system. Uh, there's they're now spending a lot of money on the health service, uh, but it's it's not clear that, well, sorry, it is clear actually that it's not in ways that increases and improves the capacity of the system. So it, it, it is definitely um, an indictment of policymaking. I think there's no doubt about that. The, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and that that's really the nub of the crisis at the moment because it's why... Uh, the Department of Health and Neffet and all those are really, really worried at the HSE, are really worried at the moment about if this surge continues, what impact it's going to have on capacity in the system. So it's, it's very, very concerning. And the Department of Health, I think, clearly believes that the, well, at least the hope is that the third vaccine, and we've administered, I think, over 500,000 third vaccines, mainly to people over 70 and people who are, um, who have some sort of um, vulnerability because of reduced immune systems or whatever, okay, vulnerable people. Um, but it's, it's, I guess in the next couple of weeks, we will see it ramp up quite significantly because uh, I was very critical at, back at the early in this, back earlier this year um, at the slowness in rolling out the vaccine program. Uh, we eventually got our act together and delivered a very impressive performance. 
Um, we're seeing the same problems now with the delivery of the third vaccine. Uh, but the hope is that over the coming weeks, that will ramp up very, very significantly. And um, hopefully that will alleviate the worst pressures on the system. One, one can only hope. Chris, can I um, talk to you about another issue that is very, very uh, topical on both sides of the water at the moment, and that is the the situation with Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol specifically. Um, last week, we got trade data for Ireland showing that Irish exports to Northern Ireland in the first nine months of the year increased by 48% or 835 million, and Irish imports from Northern Ireland increased by over 60% or just over 1 billion. So there's been a massive increase in trade value and volumes between both sides of the Ireland. And we saw also last week um, a couple of major investment announcements in Northern Ireland. Um, Arda Metal Packaging have announced a 200 million beverage canning plant near Belfast um, and the drinks manufactured there will be exported to Britain and the European Union and will create 170 jobs um, and that would represent one of the largest greenfield investments in Northern Ireland since Brexit. We also saw um, a farmer group, Alamac, um, announced the creation of a thousand jobs in its business over the next three years and both of those companies have in different ways described the reason for their investment decision um, as due to the fact that Northern Ireland currently enjoys the best of both worlds um, due to its post-Brexit trading status. Northern Ireland has free access to Great Britain and to the EU. So it's a win-win situation for Northern Ireland and most sensible business people in Northern Ireland recognise that reality But yet we have this political battle going on um, about Article 16. And um, we we hear David Frost and others talk about the excessive checks on Northern Ireland's Great Britain trade. Uh, It's it's mad stuff once again. And um, I I actually just don't get it why uh, there is so much controversy about the Northern Ireland Protocol. It bloody works well for Northern Ireland and will continue to. Well, it clearly doesn't work for at least one large constituency, which is part of, if not all of, but certainly part of the unionist community. I'm not here to speak for them, but they clearly are speaking for themselves. And the DUP, as as one leadership group of that community, is saying that um, the Belfast Agreement has been violated because one of the principles of that agreement was consent from both sides of the community to any Um, significant changes and consent was not given so you're you're automatically up against this point that the border has to go somewhere either in the Irish Sea or in the island of Ireland in which case the you know the consent of both communities will never be granted to whatever solution you come up with so in that sense it's an insoluble problem if you go down the road of compromise if not actual fudge then you can see ways out of this and that's what the European Commission has been doing at the moment with its offer of at least a 50% reduction in checks, perhaps as much as 80%. Uh, but the, as Simon Coveney said over the weekend, the role of the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, 
in overseeing all of this um, is non-negotiable. And Frost keeps saying that that uh, if the UCJ is still in charge of all of this, then they will invoke Article 16 and then we will um, have to see what happens next. What will happen next if they uh, implement Article 16 could, and it is only a could at this stage, ultimately end up in a trade war between Britain and the European Union and in 12 months' time uh, a reversion to world trade trading terms. Uh, that old one will come back Possibly, maybe, we don't know. There's a long way to go before we get to that sort of more apocalyptic outcome. But that's the sort of thing that's being talked about. And I think that's what spooked the British cabinet, not Johnson, but the British cabinet, th- those voices that still are able to to think for themselves. And there are many of those basically said to Johnson and Frost, listen, if you just go down this road and we have all of this Brexit stuff being rehashed next year, that's not a good look. We really, really can't deal with that and everything else that we're having to deal with at the same time. So there is clearly a tussle going on within the British government about whether or not to invoke Article 16 because of the consequences, the economic consequences um, for Britain and the social and political consequences for Ireland, North and South. There are some sensible voices still left. I don't know whether those voices will be drowned out. I think they might be because the key thing to remember is that Johnson needs, wants and desires the Brexit forever war to continue. He wants to fight the next election, believe it or not, on Brexit. And this Northern Ireland Protocol thing is just a device to keep the Brexit war going. When the rest of us just want it to be over, you know, those of us like me who are on the Remain side will never forgive them for doing Brexit. Nevertheless, we just want it to be over and not re-fought. But in order to keep the the voting coalition together that he assembled for the last election, he needs Brexit and the Brexit culture war to continue. And sadly for Ireland, the the main way that he's keeping that war going is by all of this Article 16 nonsense. He couldn't care less about Ireland, North or South. He really couldn't. The only thing he is interested in is winning the next election in two to three years' time, whenever it might come. And as I say, It's the Brexit culture war that keeps his electoral coalition together. Strange as that might seem, that's the dynamic in British politics. That's the thing that keeps all of those voters united is by continuing to stoke the Brexit culture war. So that's not going to go away. Even if whether they invoke Article 16 or not, they'll find ways throughout 2022 to keep poking this particular hornet's nest. So I don't think that this Brexit thing is going away soon. But as each day goes by, as we, we, we hear news of how it is damaging the British economy. And it's all small micro stuff. It's never a big picture slam dunk for, for, for the economy. It's, a, it's, a, it's a death by a thousand cuts rather than one chopping the, the head off the economy. Ryanair announced it was delisting from London Stock Exchange last week because of um, Brexit rules. There's been the, late, the latest really good piece of research published on the consequences of sterling's devaluation post the referendum result. It's now costing the average family nearly a thousand quid a year in things like higher import costs. Amazon has announced it's no longer taking UK issued visa cards. It's a small indignity. It's a small thing, but it's as a result apparently of um, Brexit allowing uh, credit card issuers and payment companies to raise their fees above those set by EU regulators. That's the key insight with these sorts of Ryanair and Amazon moves is that things happening that used to be regulated by the EU regulator 
mean that the price caps, for example, no longer apply to credit card fees. Similarly, with with mobile phone charges, UK mobile phone operators are, are announcing steadily that roaming charges, younger listeners won't know what they were, but things that meant you were charged a small fortune for using your phone in a foreign jurisdiction are coming back for UK users because EU laws that stop that ripoff have gone. And it was, and all of these things add up to great indignities at the micro level. But what, as each day comes, there's, there's a new one. And I think that is adding up in people's minds and is, is, a, is certainly a, a drag on the economy. So there's nothing nothing good for the economy that has come out of this global Britain Brexit nonsense. And it, it, it just steadily, in a salami slicing sort of way, gets, gets worse every day. Um, and unfortunately, going back to your first question about the Article 16, I've no idea whether they will um, invoke it or not. There's clearly a tussle going on within the British government about whether they should or whether they shouldn't. Don't be surprised if they do. But even if they don't, they'll find another way to come at you and annoy you about Brexit next year. And meanwhile, the chief executive of manufacturing Northern Ireland comes out with a statement that Northern Ireland exporters are currently having the time of their lives. Yeah, well, it, it is absolutely the best of both worlds. Best of yeah. both worlds. Um, you couldn't make it up that Michael Gove, that famous British politician, uh, architect of Brexit in many ways, him and Johnson both, uh, without any sense of irony, just exclaimed a, a little while ago that Northern Ireland has the best of both worlds. It has access to the EU single market and access to the UK single market which, of course, is something the rest of the UK had when it was a member of the European Union. Yes, um, but uh, they no longer do, they except Northern, Northern Ireland. If you asked Northern Ireland business people to vote, they would say, keep the protocol. I've no doubt about that. And we must remind ourselves that Northern Ireland voted to remain rather than to leave. But uh, there is a significant swathe of unionist opinion that wants Article 16 triggered because of these checks, however minimal they may or may not be um, existing. Jim, one last thing that I wanted to ask you about, and that is the prospect of legalization of certain drugs in Ireland. Now, the reason why I ask this is that my home country, Canada, um, despite my funny accent, that is where I'm from. In Ontario, they've legalized marijuana. Now, of course, that's quite controversial in the first place, but they've got to the point now where you can, on your Uber app, and I assume that you are an avid Uber user in Dublin, Jim. But on your, on your Uber app, should you ever want to get a taxi, in Canada, you can now order marijuana through the app. Not for delivery. Um, you have to go and collect it. Um, Uber are partnering with uh, an outfit called Tokyo Smoke, which has 50 outlets throughout Ontario where you can order um, order your dope and go and pick it up um, within the hour. And uh, I, I think this is an interesting initiative. How soon do you think it will come to Irish shores? There is a strong body of opinion here. Um, Aidan or Reardon in the Labour Party, for example, uh, is a strong propo- proponent of legalising some of these drugs. Um, uh, to be honest, you asked me the question, I don't know what my answer is. Uh, it depends on the time of day you ask me. Uh, you know, I, I, I've tried to look at the research where these policies have been introduced and you get sort of mixed messages. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, if you have something that is illegal, um, it will 
automatically generate illegality around it and you look at the drugs trade and so on. So that's one reason for um, legitimizing it and legalizing it. Uh, but on the other hand, then people argue that these softer drugs that are being legalized are gateway drugs into harder drugs and that it could never be conceivable that you would actually legalize those harder drugs. So as a consequence, you would still have this ongoing illegal, dangerous drug trade going on. So I actually don't know what the answer to this is, Chris. Um, it is interesting. Countries like Portland, as you say, Canada um, have certainly taken more taken a more liberal approach. Um, and the it'll take a long time to find out who's actually right about this. Um, I guess if you were to push me for an answer, I would say keep it illegal. Yeah, I'd be on the other side of this debate, Jim. The war on drugs was lost decades ago. Your prisons are full of drug-related criminals. Um, it costs you a fortune to keep all these people locked up. Your gang wars in Dublin and in many other cities are a direct result of the, the illegal drugs trade. It's just like prohibition and alcohol. Recognize reality. Uh, you can do things to control consumption. The campaign over many years to uh, highlight the evils of tobacco, I think, have had a po positive effect in the sense that v relatively few people smoke, certainly relative to... What about alcohol? Well, the again, the public messaging around that could be better. Um, the evils of alcohol are reasonably well known, but they're not as well known as the ones around tobacco. The, the people don't know enough about how alcohol can be as bad for you as as tobacco but we don't make alcohol illegal do we jim no um, we don't no ab absolutely not and so from a point of view of recognizing reality from the point of view of consistency i think that um to tax and regulate these things is almost inevitable it might take another generation or two in some countries to get there but I think the key point is that, that this war on drugs was lost a long, long time ago. You've only got to be in the city centre these days. Um, I, you know, there, there's lots of places I know here in the UK where the, the signs on the toilets, you know, they're, you know, men, women, then underneath the signs on the toilet are um, drug taking on these premises is not tolerated because that's where all the drugs are being taken in the toilets, or at least a lot of them and and so on and so on. And we know that um, cocaine is rife in Dublin at the moment. You know, it's everywhere. Uh, I've seen it. Um, it, it. The war on drugs was lost a long time ago. Your prisons are full because of it. Um, and move on that would, and, and tax it and at least get, get some money out of it and, and pay for some public services out of it. Regulate it, obviously. Keep it away from schools and kids. All the things that we do with, we try to do with booze and tobacco. Um, do all of those things writ large but just recognize reality. Right, Jim, I think we should call it there. That's been a reasonably long one, and um, I'll see you later on in the week. Yeah, okay, Chris, and I apologize for the quality of my voice today. Uh, it's not good. My son was playing a football final on Saturday, and uh, I guess I shouted too much, so I'm paying the price now. So apologies for my... No copy. worries at all, Jim. Take it easy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. 
you can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.